Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Looking forward to opening God's Word among us this morning. I encourage you to turn in a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you want to use one of the red Bibles that are provided back there, I believe it's page 955. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 today. And we are continuing our ongoing study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and the banner flying over uh, our study in this preaching and hearing of preaching series uh, is called Living Out Our Gospel Identity. And we're, we're recognizing that the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, that the King has come, that He reigns, that He won the great victory by laying down His life for all His people so that all who look to Him in faith his atoning work on the cross can become his subject and look forward uh, to his kingdom coming today and coming in its fullness when he returns. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're recognizing that it has massive implications for the universe, for the entire cosmos, all of creation. And we're recognizing that when, when we individually and collectively, as God's people, we're, we're united to Christ through faith. He gives us a new identity. No longer are we our own. No longer are we slaves to sin. We, are, we have been bought with a price. We are His dearly loved children. We, we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. We are the temple of God's Spirit, His very Spirit dwelling within us. And again, these, these truths, these, these realities have, have just massive implications for the universe and, and for eternity. But they have also have implications that are worked out in, in the nitty-gritty, the, the everyday aspects of our, our regular lives. Paul summarizes this in a statement uh, later on in chapter 10 in, verse, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 10, verse 31, when he says, so whether you eat... Or whether you drink, pretty common everyday things, we've already done those already today, I'm sure. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All that you do, the very small things, the very insignificant things of life, life even the things that we might not think, is, is, does God really, really care about this? And so today, and in the weeks to come, we're going to see as we look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, that the gospel transforms and redeems our status in life, our station in life, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're single again. Just take a look at the big picture of chapter 7. Uh, not all the time are the chapter and verse specifications in our Bibles all that helpful, but they definitely are with chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, as you look at that and just kind of get the big picture of it in your Bible, it forms one unit, chapter 7 does. And at the, at the, if you think of chapter 7, think of it sort of like a bicycle wheel. And at the hub of the wheel are verses 17 through 24, where Paul encourages believers in whatever condition you came to faith in Jesus, single, married, single again, whatever it is, you don't need to change your circumstances to be a follower of Jesus. That's the, that's the hub, whatever circumstances you are. The, the, the wheel, the, the tire going around is, is glorifying God. And then the spokes are all the different types of stations or places in life where we find ourselves that he mentions in this chapter. And you can kind of skim down it and see it, that he speaks to married people, husbands and wives. He speaks to people who once were married but are no longer married. Uh, he speaks to people who have... Uh, a mixed marriage in the sense that one spouse is a believer and one spouse is not. He speaks to widows. He speaks to those who are engaged. He speaks to those who have been, have, are single and have never been married. What God's Word is telling us is that as a result of being saved out of these situations, Paul is writing to Corinthian believers who had questions about how Following Jesus impacted these everyday realities of life. And so they wrote to Paul, who is their spiritual father. And so we're entering this new section in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is responding to, answering some questions that he received in a letter from the Corinthian church to him 
their spiritual father, their, their former pastor, you might think of it that way. You notice that Paul's tenor and his tone are a little bit kinder and gentler uh, in, in this section. Previously, he was kind of hammering them for some things that he has said, hey, I heard some stuff's going on with you guys, and we got to get this straight right now. Here, at least they're asking the questions, and you know, pastors always like it when people ask questions. They're more than happy uh, to answer your questions, uh, sometimes at length. Um, so Paul appreciates that. He's, he's got a kinder, gentler tone here. And you'll see in chapter 7, he's answering two questions from them. We're going to begin to address one of them this morning. In verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters you wrote about. And you'll see a quotation there, and we'll get back to that in a second. But it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's answering a question as to whether that statement is valid or not. Then later on in verse 25, Paul addresses a question they had regarding betrothed people or engaged people, though betrothal, as we're going to see next or in a few weeks, is a little bit different than our form of engagement today. Well, why did the, why did the Corinthians have these questions about marriage and singleness and all these statuses in life? Well, uh, Bible commentator Gordon Fee notes that there had been some considerable pressure within the Corinthian church, this is inside the church, to dissolve of or abstain from marriage. See, the preferred state for the Corinthians was singleness. And so there was pressure on single people not to get married, or, or widows or formerly married people not to get remarried. And there was pressure on married people, believers, who married but came to faith in Jesus Christ to, to dissolve their marriages or to live with their spouse as if they weren't married, to abstain from uh, physical intimacy with their spouse. Like, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ now. We should behave like brothers and sisters, right? That's what they thought. Now, now the source of this, this misunderstanding and this misapplication are some things we've noted before. First, the Corinthians had this confusion about the things of Christ's kingdom that were already now and that, that were not yet, yet to come. And they certainly knew that Jesus had said, and it's written for us in Matthew chapter 22, that in the resurrection, these are Jesus' words, uh, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And so the Corinthians, in their, in their super spirituality, said, well, we want to be really spiritual Christians, right? We want to be, be totally all in and, and spiritual. So if, if we're going to be like angels that aren't married in, in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ's kingdom comes in all its fullness, then shouldn't we just, we should just act like that right now, even within our marriages, and then there was Paul's example. And Paul, we're going to notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, appreciated his singleness. And he said, you know what? If I had it my way, we'd all be in this state, and this would be better for the kingdom and for our following Christ and, and carrying out the work of the kingdom. Um, and so folks looked at Paul's example, and they took that as the rule. But Paul's response, as we're going to see, is don't abandon. Abandon your marriages, believers, rather redeem them. Redeem them by viewing marriage from God's perspective. See, understand his intent for marriage. And as we're going to see, understand his intent for singleness. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Well, why would he have needed to, to instruct them about marriage in particular? Well, Paul is dealing here with a church, again, in the city of Corinth, uh, the Roman Empire, first century, Greco-Roman culture, uh, they would have had, in that, within that church there would have been a wide spectrum of understanding about what is marriage and what is singleness and what is human sexuality. There would have been some folks like Paul who had a, a Jewish background. And for them, marriage uh, was a matter of obedience to God. To not be married, to not pursue marriage would have been to be disobedient. In that context, from their perspective, singleness would have been a sin. At the same time, most of the church would have been coming from a, a Greek or Greco-Roman understanding. 
And in, in the Greek understanding of marriage, particularly from, from the man or the husband's point of view, marriage was so that you could have legitimate heirs. Marriage is, is for procreation. It's for, having, it's for having heirs. Sexual pleasure, well, we have, the Greeks would have said, we have prostitutes and concubines for that. And if we want romance, then we're going to go to extramarital affairs. So, if you're a Christian and you're living in that environment, many came to the conclusion that the only truly spiritual state for a Christian was celibacy, whether you were married or whether you were single. From their perspective, living in an environment and in a context where, where sexual uh, immorality was so pervasive the only moral answer was abstinence, within and without marriage. And this is the context in which Christ is redeeming people. He's buying back lost men and women. He's washing them clean. He's designating them as holy. He's declaring them righteous because of Jesus' righteousness before their Father. They are being saved out of the world system, yet they're still living among the world system. And the result is that the church, that this is new community of Jesus' people, they're, they're working out the implications of the gospel in real time. And so what we're looking at this morning is not theoretical at all. It is, it is very practical. And clearly for the Corinthians, there was much confusion. Not unlike the confusion within our own culture, and oftentimes within the church with regard to marriage and singleness and human sexuality. In our world, we see confusion in these very same areas. Uh, singleness often seems like a preferred state, and often people put off getting married because they want to live the single life for an extended period of time. And so, they delay marriage. Uh, oftentimes, couples choose not to get married. It's probably pretty much the standard in our culture that a couple will live together. They might get married later, but let's live together first to see, you know, if this is going to be long-term or not. Yet, marriage hasn't gone away, uh, but it has morphed and evolved within our culture. Of course, we've seen sort of the serial marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce within our culture now for a couple of generations. But now we're dealing with a new idea called a same-sex marriage. We're dealing with gender identity issues. This is the world that we live in. And as a result, we live in a time and a place in human history that is, I think, every bit as confused on these areas as the Corinthians were. The specific issues they were dealing with may be a little bit different, but the confusion and the level of hurt and pain that results is much the same. And so this morning and in the weeks to come, we need to, we need to hear God's Word and hear what it says on these important topics, on these very real topics that we live with day in and day out. Because even as Christians, we're all too, we all too often reflect the world in terms of our understanding of marriage and singleness and sexuality. And we need to hear this today because we need to be able to respond to our world with grace and with truth. And we need to hear this this morning because we want to see men and women in our community come to saving faith in Jesus Christ out of all kinds of backgrounds in all kinds of life situations. And so we're going to begin this morning kind of a little bit of a mini-series within our series on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, the next three weeks we're going to be in chapter 7 and we won't exhaust it. We're going to have to come back to it, Lord willing, after the new year. Uh, but we're going to talk about redeeming marriage today. Lord willing, we're going to talk about redeeming difficult marriages next week, and then two weeks from now, redeeming singleness, and then, guess what? 
Advent season is upon us. I'm very much looking forward to celebrating Advent and uh, preaching an Advent series uh, among us um, for five weeks, right? We get Christmas on Sunday, and so I'm, I'm having Matt promise that on Christmas morning, we sing, Yay, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, okay? I'm doing it in front of everybody, and you know why I'm doing that, because you can't say no if I do that, right? So... I'm looking forward to Advent. I'm looking forward to, to remembering again uh, God's gift to us in the Savior uh, born in Bethlehem. But this, be, this week we begin three weeks in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll, we'll be back to finish it out, uh, Lord willing, after the, uh, the new year. So let me, let me pray, and let's begin to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the first seven verses. But let's ask God's help as we tackle a challenging challenging topic this morning together. Speak, O Lord. That is our one request today. God, as we come to your word, it is your word, it is your, your spoken word. You have, you have given it to your people for our good, every bit of it. And God, as we look at a topic that is uh, very personal, very intimate, we pray that you would give us great help, Holy Spirit, to understand uh, your word to us today, to understand how to apply it and how to live out these, these awesome realities in our world. Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the text then. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, first seven verses. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is God's holy word, and we thank him for it. Two weeks ago when we were last in 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 6, we noted that because God has, has fully redeemed us as, as, as whole people, body and soul, our bodies are, are meant for glorifying God. This morning we have another specific application of that reality. This week we're looking at how marital intimacy glorifies God. In short, what is God glorifying sex? Now this message, I want to just stop and say, is for all of us. I could understand where some might be checking out right now and saying, well, there's not a context for me to apply this message, and so this message perhaps is not for me this morning. I want to encourage us all to engage with God's Word this morning. Uh, you may be single today, but that can change. And so for you, understand this message as one of preparation, a means of preparation. I would say that to the teenagers in the room today. Learn now, apply later. Secondly, we together are a community of God's people. And as a community, we have a stake in one another's lives. And so we need, all need to understand this message as a means of cooperation. How do we support the marriages among us? How do we support the individual brother or sister with whom we are in community? And then finally... We will all be married one day when our king returns. We are together the bride of Christ. And so, so what you hear today from God's word about marriage, 
has a, has a much broader application and context to our relationship as the body of Christ to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so this message should serve as a means of anticipation as we look forward to that day and even say in our hearts and with our mouths, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so let's hear the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And I should let you know right up front that I have, uh, with permission, borrowed heavily from uh, my friend and fellow pastor uh, with whom I served for many years, David Sunday, and a very helpful message that he preached on this uh, text several years ago. And in fact, the outline I'm going to use is, is his outline. And it's just two questions this morning that we want to answer from the text. First, can God be glorified through sexual intimacy? And secondly, if so, how can God be glorified through sexual intimacy? So first, can God be glorified through sexual intimacy? Many in the Corinthian church said, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. They saw firsthand the, the, the sexual promiscuity and perversion that was all around them in their city and in their culture. And on a personal level, no doubt they had experienced that perversity firsthand before God had saved them. And so they really didn't have a context for, context for sexual purity, but only for sexual impurity. And they saw Paul's example of celibate singleness, and they concluded all sex must be wicked, all sex must be dirty. The best policy is to just say no, whether you're married or not, abstinence outside of marriage, abstinence inside of marriage. And so they were denying, in terms of married folks, a natural physical pleasure for the sake of spiritual growth. You know what that's called when we deny our natural physical wants and needs for the sake of spiritual growth or to be super holy? It's called asceticism. Think about monks living out somewhere or Martin Luther when he was a monk uh, living in a, in, a, in a dark little cell and not using a blanket and, and sort of um, beating his body and eating only um, just the, the most basic of food. This is what Luther uh, did thinking that it would somehow draw him closer to God. And people were practicing that in terms of physical intimacy in their marriages in Corinth. This is another example of their bumper sticker theology. We see it in verse 1. Did you notice there are quotes in verse 1? Paul is quoting something they said and probably, no doubt, another one of their slogans or, or their, their bumper stickers. This is what it means to be spiritual. It is good uh, literally, it says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, which means it is good for uh, people not to have intimacy. It's another example of their dualistic nature. Remember, we talked about this before. In the, in the sort of the Greek way of thinking, uh, the, the, the spirit was good. And, and to get the spirit more in connected with, with ultimate reality, that was a good thing. But, but the body and the physical, that was bad. And this is just another example of, of promoting the spiritual, the, the spiritual at the expense of the physical. And what they were doing was an overcorrection. It's sort of like when you're driving along and you find yourself going into that ditch. So you jerk the wheel, you find yourself in the other ditch, right? Well, they were avoiding the ditch of sexual immorality, but they had, they had drove, driven into the ditch of complete abstinence not only outside of marriage, but within marriage. And Paul answers their concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the verses that we just looked at. But we need to understand that this is not the only passage in Scripture that speaks to uh, our human sexuality and to marriage. And certainly Paul is addressing them with, with the whole context of what the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, uh, says on this topic. And so I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand the larger witness of Scripture on this topic. So I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 right now. Genesis chapter 2, we're going back to the beginning. In the beginning, when God created everything, and, and just the beautiful story of how God created 
people male and female. I I love this passage. Uh, It should at least be referred to at at every uh, wedding that takes place because it it gives us the context for for our, our masculinity, our femininity, and God's creation of marriage. Look beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. He had created everything and so far he had only created one human being We know his name was Adam. It's not good that this guy be alone. I will make a helper suitable or or fit for him or corresponding to him. In other words, he needs help. Amen, ladies? I gave gave you an opening right there. I, 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 I can't do it all the time. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the, of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them or name them. And whatever the man uh, called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam, here we go again, repetition in the Bible, pay attention, pay attention, but for him, a helper fit for him was not found. In other words, he needs help. Amen, ladies? Okay, gotcha that time. So the Lord God caused the man to go into a deep sleep, and while he slept, God took from the man's side, from his rib, and closed it. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This was a gift to the man. And then, verse 23, the first time we hear human speech in the Bible, And look what it is. It's what you hear all the time when you turn on your radio. It's a love song. First human speech in the Bible. God brings the woman to the man and he says, Ah, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. Not like all these other mutts and things God was showing. She's like me. She's she's of my kind. Yet she's not like me. And so I'm going to call her woman, because she was taken out of man. And and here's the key. God is bringing the woman to the man. This is the first marriage ceremony. God is giving away the bride to her. And then we have human marriage established. So much confusion about what marriage is. Here it is in our Bibles from God. Pay attention. This is marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold, for, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here we have the establishment of, of humanity as male and female to glorify God, not just one gender, but two genders in order to glorify God. Uh, they, they are alike, and yet they are different. They correspond. They are suited. They are fit for one another. They complement one another. And God creates and establishes human marriage here to glorify Him. They can glorify Him better together than they could apart. And so God's math with marriage is one plus one equals one. Something bigger, one man, one woman, together form something larger than that. They, they form a married couple, a unit, corresponding and glorifying God together. And their unity, their one flesh unity, is expressed uniquely and wonderfully through physical intimacy. In other words, sex was God's idea. I thought that's where the men were going to say amen. Okay. <laughs> we got to lighten it up a little bit in here, right? You, you guys look so serious. And it's just me up here. You... Now, you might say, if you're an astute biblical scholar, that after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. Brilliant. 
And you might say, well, there's a fall here. The sin enters in. Didn't this, this, all this good stuff about marriage and, um, you know, man and wife and, and male and female, you know, in perfect, unhindered unity, didn't, didn't they get messed up by the fall? And the answer is yes, it did in some pretty serious ways. And if you read Genesis chapter 3, it, it cuts at, at our masculinity and our femininity in some very specific ways. And yet, as with all of creation that has fallen, there's still much good in it. And the Bible, as we continue on, does not um, call sex dirty. It, it continues to put human sexuality in the context of marriage and celebrate it. Just one quick example. You can turn there or you can just listen. From Proverbs chapter 5, the author of Proverbs, uh, Solomon is speaking to his son about adultery and the dangers of it. Should have listened to his own advice, but he's speaking to his son about the dangers of adultery and about the goodness of having your own wife. And he says this, son, listen to the poetic, it's poetic, but you'll get it. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And if you keep on going into the Song of Solomon, you'll see that Solomon's just getting started in talking about the goodness of intimacy within marriage. And so as we understand and look at Paul's instruction going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see that he wants to, to, to root the Corinthians in these foundational realities. And nowhere in Paul do we see in his writings or hear from him of advocating this sort of ascetic kind of self-denial from the good things of creation as a means of somehow getting closer to God. In fact, he says in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, talking about, about not denying yourself. He says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these are good gifts that God has given us to be used in the way that he created them to be used. I love how Pastor uh, Dr. Ray Ortland put it in this article that he entitled, The Gospel for Everyday Life. The gospel has impact on the everyday realities of life. He says, The truth is, everything created by God is good and is to be received by us gratefully. This beautiful truth includes marriage and sex and food and mowing the lawn and flying a kite and paying bills and sharpening a pencil and sitting on a porch in the evening and playing Monopoly with the kids and laughing at hilarious jokes and setting up chairs at church and so forth. There is so much divine goodness all around. To push it away, to somehow be above it, would insult our gracious Creator. Our very earthly human existence is where true holiness can thrive. Let me ask you, what did you do yesterday when you noticed, and no doubt as you noticed today, just how beautiful it is outside? Did you stay inside and say, you know what, I can really better worship God and show Him how holy I am by not enjoying this beautiful day that He has made? Man, if you were like me, you went outside and you said, I don't know how many more of these we're going to get. I'm going to enjoy this. And that's good. That's, that's good Christian theology of the world. That's enjoying the goodness that still exists in creation. My goodness, you could even celebrate your team's World Series victory to the, 
to the glory of God. That could even be done to the glory of God. God gives us good things and good gifts in this world to enjoy. And so the answer to the first question, can God be glorified through sexual intimacy, is yes. God created us as sexual beings. It was His idea. It's a good gift from Him. And so He can be glorified through physical intimacy. So then the next question is how? How can God be glorified through sexual intimacy? I'm going to answer it four ways, four applications from the text. And I am so running out of time, aren't I? Um, well, let's, let's keep plugging then. First, God is glorified when we re respect His design for sexual intimacy. God is glorified when we respect His design for sexual intimacy. Look at verse 2. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Well, you, that's what you wrote. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Point of clarification there. And this has been misunderstood in the church. Paul is not in that statement saying each man needs to get married and have a wife and each woman needs to get married and have a wife. He's here, when he says each man, he's speaking to each married man, and he's speaking to each married woman. And so he's not putting pressure on single believers that, that if they're married, they're, if they're not married, they're somehow uh, second-class citizens in the kingdom. And we're going to speak a lot more about that in two weeks when we do talk about singleness to the glory of God. But Paul here is speaking to married people who have been abstaining from physical intimacies within their marriage. And he's being very clear here saying, each of you should have, that is, you should be intimate with, you should have your spouse in an intimate way. Each man should have his wife his own, and each woman her own husband. And so what he's saying is that within the, the covenantal relationship of, of one man and one woman joined before God, God's design for human flourishing, there is an, an exclusive context for physical intimacy that God has created. He, he, that's His design. And that design is not meant to limit us, but it's meant to promote our freedom and our joy and our satisfaction. We need to reject the lie that we see on TV we hear in the movies and watch in the movies and a lot of other places, we see it on a daily basis, the lie that tries to convince us otherwise. It says, did God really say that sex is only for married people? You're missing out. Look at all the experiences that everyone else is having. You will not surely die. You will not regret it. Perhaps you've listened to Satan's lies about sex. And just talking about this topic makes you feel dirty and ashamed, like your damaged goods. Here again, the cleansing words of the gospel. And such were, such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Friends, such were all of us. There are no sexually pure people in this room today. There are only those who have been made pure through Jesus' cleansing blood shed at the cross of Calvary, which is more than sufficient to make you clean and to make you His pure, His pure bride when you confess your sin, all of it, all kinds of it, not just in this area, and ask Him to forgive you and grant you eternal life. It's not too late to embrace Jesus. And it's not too late to embrace His plan for your sexuality. 
Secondly, God is glorified when we reflect His generosity through sexual intimacy. It's verses 3 and 4. God, God's design for physical intimacy is within the context of marriage. So, so how do a husband and how do a wife go about carrying out that design for intimacy? That is, what is the motivation and, and what is the attitude of each spouse? Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife, you can fill in the blanks, should give to her husband his conjugal rights. Each is to give. Literally, what it says is each is to pay the other what they owe them. Kind of like a marital IOU. ESV, I think, doesn't help us by putting the word rights in there because this whole area is not about rights. It's about responsibility. The responsibility of each spouse to serve the other, to care for the, the other in this area. Verse 4 gives us the reason or the ground for that. Here it is. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body exclusively, but the husband does as well. And likewise, in the very same way, total equality here, the husband does not have authority over his own body exclusively, but the wife does as well. In marriage, we surrender exclusive rights to our bodies. It's that one plus one equals one that we saw in Genesis chapter 2, that, that, that one flesh union in, in every aspect of married life. Uh, in my friend David Sunday's sermon on this passage, he mentioned hearing about a husband, a new husband, clearly, who did not like brushing his teeth. Apparently, he had not brushed his teeth much in single life, and he continued that habit into married life. Well, one morning, as he was getting ready, he noticed a toothbrush and a note attached to it. Darling, those teeth now belong to me. Please brush them. Your loving wife. It's true. Note the complete mutuality and equality of husband and wife here. What Paul says to the, to the husband, uh, he says equally to the wife. What he says to the wife here, he says equally uh, to the husband. It's, it's interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul has been accused of being a, a misogynist, a woman hater, but I'm sure as the Corinthians read this, this letter to them where he uh, requires of husbands exactly what he requires of wives, wives they would have thought he was a radical feminist based on what he says here. Because he says to husbands, you have to think about the, the, the Greco-Roman world and, and the power that, that, a, that a husband and that a man had over all aspects of life and his home. And Paul says to, to the husband, your, your body does not belong to you. We need to realize Something like that had probably never been heard in, in the history of humanity. Where someone had said to husbands, you have an equal responsibility to your wife. You equally belong to her as much as she belongs to you, body and soul. And so we need to be reminded, husbands, there, that there is... There's no place for a chauvinist attitude here that says that intimacy is the husband's right and it is the wife's obligation. This is not about rights. This is about responsibilities toward one's spouse. It's about selfless service. To give to your spouse what they need. And husbands, that means we're responsible to understand that what our wives need in this area is not exactly the same as what we need. Have you noticed they work on a little bit of a different framework in this whole area? We need to understand that, and we need to serve them 
with that in mind. So husbands and wives need to to say, what does my spouse need? What will bring my spouse satisfaction? And if you don't know, how about this? Ask them. Number three, God is glorified when we remember His instruction concerning sexual intimacy. God is glorified when we remember His instruction in this area. God's instruction to married couples here is really quite clear, simple, straightforward. Don't deprive one another. Literally, stop cheating or defrauding one another. That's what Paul compared this to in their context. Regular intimacy in marriage is not an option. It is a command from Scripture. Now, to be sure, particular circumstances uh, in a couple's life may dictate otherwise for a limited time, distance, health issues, season of life issues. But under normal circumstances, intimacy is to be a normal aspect of married life. Paul does give an exception here, but do you notice how specific he is about that exception? He says, if it's by agreement, if it's for a limited time, if it's for the purpose of prayer. And then note also, he says, but even that's that exception is not commanded. He says in verse 16, which I think really belongs with verse 5, I'm saying this as a concession. As a concession, you could take a break for these reasons and under these circumstances and conditions. And note also that what is commanded here is so that husband and, uh, and wife might not be tempted beyond their ability. I don't know who ever said the Bible is not realistic or not down-to-earth, but that is as down-to-earth and, and real a statement in the Bible, uh, rubber-meets-the-road kind of a statement uh, that you're going to find. Very realistic. The bottom line here, just as sex outside of marriage is wrong, Paul says, and God says to us, abstinence within marriage is wrong. Perhaps you might say, husband or wife, I just don't feel like it. I think you need to understand that's not unusual, nor is it a legitimate excuse. Now, if you don't feel safe with your spouse, that's another story, and the two of you need to talk about that. You probably need to talk to some brothers and sisters in Christ or a pastor or a Christian counselor about that. But... If you're just saying, I just don't feel like it, you can't wait for your feelings to catch up. You need to trust God. You need to obey His instruction from His Word. Simply put, do not deprive one another. Finally, God is glorified when we rejoice in His gift of sexual intimacy. Paul says it in verse 7, this is a gift. Paul says, now I've got the gift of singleness in celibacy. And we're going to talk about that later as well. Paul says, I'm single, it's a gift because I'm very flexible in ministry and I don't have a desire, those desires to have a wife. And so, you know, I'm in good shape because God has gifted me for this life. But others have another gift. It's called their spouse. It's called marriage. We're all gifted differently. James says, the Apostle James says uh, in his letter, every good and perfect gift comes from, the, from above. Every good and gift, perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Husbands and wives, trust God. Continually receive his gift by continually giving of yourself to the spouse that He has given you. Friends, marriage is one of God's good gifts. It's not His only gift. And certainly not His ultimate gift. Listen to how John Piper puts it. God is ultimate. Marriage is not. God is the most important reality Marriage is less important, far less important, infinitely less important. Marriage exists to magnify the truth 
and worth and beauty and greatness of God. God does not exist to magnify marriage. Until this order is vivid and valued, until it is seen and savored, marriage will not be experienced as a revelation of God's glory, but as a rival to God's glory. Marriage is a good gift. We who are married should seek to grow our marriages. We should seek to to cultivate our marriages. And yet we should realize that they are not ultimate. And we should not make an idol of them. Our marriages and the marriages around us are not ultimate. But they are intended to point us to that which is ultimate. To Jesus' covenant promise to make us all his bride. You see, we were bought with a price by our faithful Savior, who is our betrothed husband. Jesus loved the church, and he gave of himself for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might cleanse us, that he might wash us with the water of the word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. And one day our king is coming back. And there's going to be the marriage supper, the marriage supper of the lamb. After the marriage supper comes the honeymoon. That's why we call it the consummation. Because we're going to see our Savior face to face. We're going to be unashamed before us. We're going to be fully known in his presence. We're always going to be with him in the presence of the one who is our light, in the presence of our king of heaven. And in his presence, we will experience pleasure and joy and satisfaction far beyond anything we experience now. And so we say, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you this morning for good gifts. All kinds of good gifts. World Series wins, beautiful November days, the fellowship that we have with one another, the food that we'll eat later today. We thank you, God, for the good gift of singleness. We thank you, God, for the good gift of marriage. God, we thank you for the good gift of intimacy within our marriages. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy all these good gifts to your honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.